Amen. I'm so glad that Jesus loved me enough to take me from where I was and also loved me enough not to leave me there. He accepted me the way I was, but he didn't accept me to stay that way. I got a confession. One of the things that he's still working on is this. I don't like to wait. Matter of fact, for me, wait is a four-letter word. It's a dirty word. I hate to wait. I, I don't think I ever will like to wait. And that's an area that God's working on me and reminding me of that flaw in my character. Sometimes it's simple ways. Just the other day, my wife Emily and I were uh, at Safeway. We just wanted to pick up some stuff for a salad. And, and I thought, hey, let's get some bread to go with it. And we were at Safeway and saw this uh, you know, take and bake bread. And I thought, man, that's so simple. Even I can do it. And so I took it and read the instructions, which I like to do, and popped it in the oven. And here's, here's two of the instructions on it. It said, bake bread 8 to 12 minutes, and then the next one is rest 10 to 15 minutes before serving. That means wait, right? Rest. I, I don't like that. It was hard enough smelling that bread in the kitchen while it was baking, and then I took it out, and I dutifully hit the timer, and okay, I'm going to do what it says, and I'm smelling it the whole time, and I go in there at the appointed time when the timer goes off. I'm so ready to cut into that bread, and the end was already off of it. <laughs> Evidently, there's somebody else in my household that has a problem waiting, too. And then last week, as a part of what my responsibilities are at Phoenix Seminary, Emily and I were at a conference over in California, if you have not driven in L.A. traffic lately, don't. Going and coming, it was like, thank God for HOV lanes. And even this morning, for crying out loud, God, give me a break. I'm coming to church, I think I'm preparing, I've got my notes, and I get halfway to church, it's like, you left the notes on the printer at home. Okay, no problem. Don't have time to go home. I'll just print it off in the office. So I come in, and we're going through our rehearsal stuff, and I you know, go over, and I pull out my computer, and I hit print, and it starts Word and doing all of its stuff, that monstrosity we call a printer. And then I get this irritating little message, enter code, enter code. I don't know code. <laughs> and so I pick up the phone, I start calling some people I think might know the code, and I can't get through to them either because they're busy with worship stuff. How inconvenient. And so I said, okay, well, what's the next plan B, plan C? So I take out a thumb drive, and I say, I'll save it to this, and I'll bring it back to the sound booth, and they can print it off on the, on the printer that's back there. No problem. We can get this done. And while I'm doing all that stuff, uptight and anxious about all this, the printer starts whirring and spitting out the pages. I just hadn't waited for it to warm up long enough. Wait. Don't like that word. Even more so when it's life issues, not simple stuff like that. You know, when we pray and we don't feel like that God's answering our prayers in our way, or in the timing, we would have him pray, answer them. You know, maybe it's finances when they're tight, or even looking for a job to provide for my family. You know, when, when that happens and you're faced with meeting bills and you're not having enough income, it's not only frustrating, it can be tempting to maybe cut corners, to falsify an expense report, to cheat on my taxes, to take a job with a company that I don't really respect for their integrity or lack thereof, but I gotta have a way to make a living. 
When there's some nagging physical problem, you go to the doctor and it's not a good report. It's hard. It's, when that happens, we're tempted to get angry with God, to be frustrated with Him, to be disillusioned. Why are you doing this to me? You could do something about it. And, or maybe if we're taking medication, and I believe in medication, so don't take this as any step against that, but we could begin to overuse medication or use it wrongly because prescription medication is one of the worst drug abuses in our nation. Maybe you're longing for a deep and meaningful relationship, or maybe you're in a relationship, but you're lonely in that relationship because it's not really panning out according to what was promised. You can be tempted to either grow isolated and put up walls further or to seek intimacy in other places with other people in sinful ways. See, that's, that's the nature of the human being, isn't it? If we're praying and God's not answering, we become frustrated and, and not want to wait any further or trust him or depend upon him or rest in him. And this morning in this series in Hebrews, we're going to look at a group of people who were in the same place. The book of Hebrews, which we started two weeks ago, this thread lines, talks about how everything points to Jesus. I love what Caleb said in his message two weeks ago, how if you pull a thread that's here, you're going to find out it's a, Jesus comes out. It's attached to him. And that's true in this book. And here are people, Jewish followers of Jesus, who had uh, believed in him as Messiah. They believed in his death. They believed in his resurrection. They trusted him. They moved away from their old heritage of Judaism to follow this new thing of Christianity or the way. And yet, Jesus has been dead for 30 years now. He's been gone for 30 to 35 years. And it's like, where is the promise of his coming? I thought he was going to create a kingdom on earth. I, I thought he was going to be here. I thought we were going to be his followers. I thought he was going to restore Israel to its a prominent place. And yet he's not here. And it doesn't seem to be working. And so a lot of their friends are trying to persuade them to come back to the old way by questioning the validity of their faith. That's what we see here in chapter 3. We see that the whole book of Hebrews is about pointing people to Jesus, though. To the superiority of Jesus. In Caleb's message a couple of weeks ago, it's the superiority of Jesus to even the angels. It's how great a salvation that Matt talked about last week. It's pointing to Jesus as superior to the Aaronic priesthood, to the Levitical priesthood, to the sacrificial system. All of these were shadows. Jesus was the reality. And he's trying to demonstrate the supremacy and the centrality and the superiority of Jesus to all others. And to say, don't give up. Trust him. Rest in him. Don't rebel against him. We see this in the first part of chapter 3 where Jesus is greater than Moses. Listen to what it says. Therefore, my holy brothers, these are believers. These are people who put their trust in, in Christ, and not by their own holiness, but by Christ's holiness that is given to them, imputed to them. Therefore, my holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who anointed him, appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, all much more glory is the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. If you were here two weeks ago, did you hear Caleb talk about that in chapter 1? In the past times, God has spoken through the prophets and the apostles, not apostles, but prophets and priests. But in these days, these latter days, he has spoken to us through his son, who is the exact representation or image of the Father. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and boasting in our hope. Hit the pause button there for a second. What's all this about? He's saying, look, Moses was faithful. Moses was a great leader of your people. He is revered among the people who are Jewish. And rightly so, he was a faithful man. And he's revered even because he was the one who established the tabernacle as the place of, of the worship of God. That's the house it's talking about here. But it really wasn't Moses that built that house, was it? It was God. God gave Moses the blueprints. God gave Moses the materials. God gave Moses the gifted people to put this tabernacle together. It ultimately, the glory belongs to God because God is greater than Moses. In a similar fashion, Jesus is also the architect of the household of faith. That's men and women who follow Jesus as their savior. And Jesus is greater than Moses. But as Moses went throughout the people, they had a hard time. Moses was the leader that God had appointed, but the people had a tendency to rebel against Moses, to want to go their own way, like sheep have their independent-mindedness, and not to rest in God, but to, to go astray instead of resting and following. Well, he's saying, look, the same thing, they weren't just rebelling against Moses, they're rebelling against God. And so there's a warning that's here that's followed by a promise. And the warning is this. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his, meaning God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now, this is a quotation from another revered book of those people that came from the Jewish faith as well as those of us that are Christians, the book of Psalms. It's like the hymnal of Israel. It's the worship book of Israel. And so this is Psalm 95. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn there. I'm going to ask them to put this on the screen so you don't have to flip back and forth. If you're in Hebrews, you're not going back and forth. And look in verse 6 and following. Listen to what it says. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that phrase, they shall not enter my rest, is repeated four or five times in this chapter in Hebrews. What's that about? It's a warning. There's a choice that even God's people have to make between are we going to rest in him? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to follow him? Or are we going to go in rebellion our own way, whether that is passive or active rebellion? It doesn't matter. It's still rebellion. 
Disobedience is saying, God, I think I know better than you do on this one. You may say you're God. No, I'm not, but I, I beg to differ with that. That's the heart of rebellion. That's the heart of pride. That's the heart of sin. By the way, what's the middle letter in the word sin? Yeah. I know it's a hard word to spell. But it's a harder concept to admit, isn't it? I. We have an ego problem. That's the issue of sin. That's the issue of rebellion. And they had it and we have it. So let's unpack this a little bit. This psalm is referring back to something that's written in historical narrative in Exodus 17. And the whole thing was God had taken the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He had done so by doing 10 different plagues that were polemics or attacks against the gods of Egypt. In every one of those, God was saying to them, look, I'm God, none of these others are, and I'm gonna show you in such a fashion that I will take them on their home court. For those of you that are March Madness fans, little gratuitous flip in there for you, okay? I'm gonna take you on your home court. This is not even a neutral court. I'm gonna take you. So if it's the God of the Nile, I'm gonna turn, turn it to blood. If, if it's the bull, Apis, I'm gonna affect the livestock. If it's the sun, I'm gonna darken the sun. Even the firstborn of Moses, I mean of no, get it right, Rick, okay. Who am I talking about? Pharaoh, there you go. That's the right guy. Just seeing if you were paying attention. Come on, give me a break. All of those who say, I'm God, you're not. He takes them out. He parts the Red Sea when they're about to die at the hands of the Egyptian armies that are chasing them. He provides food for them in the form of manna, which literally means, what is it? It's bread from heaven. And when they didn't want just the carbs, he provides protein for them with quail, and they didn't have to pick birdshot out of them. There's all kinds of quail. Now, I'm sure not the ones that are in your backyard. Okay, so, but they had to eat. He provides for them all these things. He gives them light at night to travel by and a cloud in the day to guide them and they come to a place and they don't have water and they grumbled and they complained and they murmur, 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 murmured. You like that word, murmur, murmur, murmur? Yeah, that's a great word that the word sounds a lot like what's happening, murmur, 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 murmur. Quarreling, complaining, that's exactly what Meribah and Massa mean. They are testing God with their attitude. It's like, I can imagine God's going like, what do you want me to do to show that I'm among you? Now, time out. They, they were such a stiff-necked and hard-headed people, weren't they? I know that nobody in this room would ever be guilty of that. I am. Newsflash, you are too. Right? It's just a matter of what the issue is and how long ago it happened. That's a bad case of the heart. That is testing God. He's saying, don't do that. Trust me, don't test me. Will you, will you believe in me? Or are you going to continue to rebel against me? The beauty of this is just that that's the warning. He's saying, look, if you choose to go your own way, and you can choose to do that, that's a part of how I've made you. You won't like the results. I'm trying to provide for you what's truly life for you, and yet if you don't want to receive it, that's on you. 
but you're not going to enter my rest. Now, some people have looked at this. They're talking about entering into Canaan, which this group, when he said, I loathed you, not loved you, I loathed you for 40 years because those that were in rebellion died in the wilderness and never entered into the land of Canaan. That does not mean that Canaan is the equivalent to heaven and that if you're a believer and you don't follow God, then you're not going to get into heaven. That's what some people have made this say. I don't believe that's a legitimate translation or interpretation of this. Of course, if you or I or anyone believe that we can earn our way into heaven, the scriptures are clear, we're suffering from delusions of grandeur. None of us gets to have our sins forgiven by our works, no matter how thorough and good they are. It is a gift of God. It's a grace. We receive it as a gift. But we are saved for the purpose of living a life of good works, which God ordained ahead of time. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. If you want to make sure I'm not making it up, check it out. So what's this saying? He's saying, look, if you want to choose to go your own way, I'll let you do that, but it's going to be a whole lot harder. You're not going to enter into my rest. And you're going to experience instead my discipline. You're going to experience instead me blocking you. You're going to experience instead difficulties in life, and I'm not going to be there to help you as long as you're trying to do it on your own. Because I'm going to let you do that until you're willing to turn to me, until you're willing to hit bottom, until you're willing to look up and say, God, help me, and to repent of trying to do it our own way. Even as believers, we can still be a child of God and be a disobedient child, right? That's the rebellion part. But there's a promise that's in here that's a beautiful promise. Look at what it says in verse 6 and following. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, meaning rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of their disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, like in Psalm 95, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Then he goes on to talk about how the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Anytime we disobey what God says in here, we're in rebellion. But when we conform to what he has said, we have the promise of entering into his rest. Now remember how we start the first in verse 1. Therefore, my holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus. Jesus is superior, remember? So he points them back to Jesus. So wouldn't it be wise for us to listen to what Jesus has to say about this? Think he might weigh in on this concept? Sure he does. Matthew chapter 11 is one place, but it is really a key one. If you've got your Bibles, again, they'll put this on the screen. But Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. 
Let's do that again, because some of you may not have been familiar with that. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you That's a promise. What does it take to get that promise? We come to him. We turn to him. We trust him. We wait upon him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a great, sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It would be great on a plaque on the wall. Do you know what a yoke is? A yoke is like this. Matter of fact, this is a yoke. This is a gift Emily got me for Father's Day to do yard work with. Okay. This is a yoke, or in Tennessee parlance, a double tree. You know why they call it double tree? If I really wanted to have fun with this, I would ask somebody to come up, like Paul Shetter or somebody else from the audience, and say, Paul, do you trust me? Would you be glad to take this off and put it around your neck so we can demonstrate for our people? See, the, a beast of burden would put their neck through here. And another one over here. And they would pull together. Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. Well, this is a work instrument. What do you mean easy, light? It's work. Don't you know, Jesus, that you said, take up your cross and follow me? And don't you know that you said you have to sacrifice all these things? And don't you know that you promised it's going to be difficult? Yes, Jesus knows all of that. So how is it easy? Well, let's say Paul came up here with me. Now let him be Jesus because he's more spiritual and mature than I am. Okay, older anyway. I don't know, we'll talk about that later, Paul. Okay, if, let's say Jesus is one of these and either Paul or I the other one, how's this gonna go down better? If we pull in the same direction that Jesus is pulling? Or if we try to go our own way when he's going that way? You get the picture? Take my yoke upon you. For my burden is light and my yoke is easy as long as you're pulling the same direction as I am. As long as you let me do the heavy lifting. Boy, Jesus was masterful. What a great picture of that. Well, what does that sound good? Great stuff for the wall. Like I said, does it really work? Let me give you some examples. About a year ago, one of my sisters-in-law called us and she discovered she had cancer. That's not something anybody wants to hear, but she just retired from 20-something years of teaching school and was so looking forward to spend time with her grandkids. And it's the word she's got cancer. So she goes in and they do what they need to do and everything looked like was fine. And then about four weeks ago, uh, Emily and I get a call from her and we spent probably 40, 45 minutes on the phone because cancer's come back. It was really, really hard. She knows Jesus and she loves Jesus and she knows Jesus loves her and she's praying like we are that God would heal her and, and yet she's okay if he doesn't. She said, I don't want to set up any sense of false hope. She's picking up her grandkids from school, and as she's going home, the Lord just directed her to start singing, and she starts singing. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. He is the solid rock. And then she gets home that night, and her husband's reading to her a devotion that they both like, and guess what hymn is quoted in that devotional? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That was a Saturday. I was seated right over here, listening to the praise team prepare for worship that morning, still hurting for my sister-in-law, Lynn. And the team breaks in, and I didn't even know it. I hadn't looked at the schedule. My hope is built on nothing less. I just wept. And I got out my phone, and I texted her. I said, Lynn, guess what? I've been praying for you, and guess what song they're singing right now? It's like, God won't let me forget you. You rest in him? She's resting despite the outcome. Two weeks ago, I was at a spiritual formations conference at Bethany Bible Church, and Ted Wiesti had been in the hospital with cancer treatments the night before, and he came to lead the spiritual um, formations conference. He was the host, and, and he was leading it. And people said, well, did the doctor tell you that you could come? He said, no. They said, did you ask if you could? He said, no, but they didn't tell me I couldn't come. <laughs> Here's something he said. He said, my greatest fear is not that the treatment would not work. He said, I have a good prognosis, but my greatest fear is not that the treatment wouldn't work. My greatest fear is the treatment will work, and then I will lose the sense of dependency I have on Christ right now. <laughs> That's resting, isn't it? It's resting in whatever the circumstance is. Wait on the Lord. There's a young woman who, her name is Mary Ann. I've never met her, but I've read her story. And she was really in a low place because she had had three miscarriages in a very short period of time. And a friend, Julia, knew that she was in a low place. And so she sent to her a poem because this poem had been meaning to her, and she said, I think this will give you some hope, and both these ladies are followers of Jesus. And the poem is entitled simply, Wait, but it has a profound message. I want to read it to you. It was unknown. This is one of those things that circulated on the internet like author unknown for a lot of years. This is before 2001. Nobody really, well, not nobody, publicly nobody knew who had written this. And so she took that dog-eared copy and she stuck it to her refrigerator and she would listen to this and she would talk with the Lord about it, but she let him direct her thoughts. Listen to what it says and listen well. I pled and wept for a clue to my fate. And the master gently said, wait. Wait? You say wait? My indignant reply, Lord, I need answer. I need to know why. Is your hand shortened or have you not heard? By faith I've asked and I'm claiming your word. My future and all to which I relate hangs in the balance and you tell me to wait? I'm needing a yes, a go-ahead sign, or even a no to which I'll resign. You promised, dear Lord, that if we believe, we need to but ask and we shall receive. Lord, I've been asking and this is my cry. I'm weary of asking. I need a reply. Then quietly, softly, I learned of my fate as my master replied again, wait. So I slumped in my chair. 
defeated and taught, I grumbled to God, so I'm waiting for what? He then seemed to kneel, and his eyes met with mine, and he tenderly said, I could give you a sign. I could shake the heavens and darken the sun. I could raise the dead and cause mountains to run. I could give you all that you seek and pleased you would be. You have what you want, but you wouldn't have me. You'd not know the depth of my love for each saint. You'd not know the power that I give to the faint. You'd not learn to see through the clouds of despair, and you'd not learn to trust just by knowing I'm there. You'd not know the joy of resting in me when darkness and silence are all you can see. You'd never experience the fullness of love when the peace of my spirit descends like a dove. You'd know that I give and I save for a start, but you'd not know the depth of the beat of my heart, the glow of my comfort late into the night, the faith that I give when you walk without sight the depth that's beyond getting just what you ask from an infinite God who makes what you have last. You'd never know, should your pain quickly flee, what it means that my grace is sufficient for thee. Yes, your dearest dreams overnight would come true, but oh, the loss if you missed what I'm doing in you. So be silent, my child, and in time you will see that the greatest of gifts is to truly know me. And though oft my prayers seem terribly late, my most pressure answer of all is still wait. Marianne was so moved by this over a period of time that she said, I can't let it go. I've got to find out who the author is of this. I don't know how she did it, but she tracked down the person who was the author, who had then passed away. She talked to his wife. And the result of that was Mary Ann's an author, not an author, she's an artist, and she illustrated this little book that's simply entitled, Wait. It's an incredible statement with sidebars from different people about what it means to wait and how God provides. And in the foreword, in the dedication, Mary Ann dedicates this to her daughter, Julia who's named after her friend who gave her this poem to start with. And her work is all through these pages. Now, I want to be clear. Marianne was experiencing the rest that came from following Jesus before God blessed her with a daughter. He never promises us all that we desire and all that we want. He promises us himself. But is that sufficient? It is, if we rest in him, if we wait. Let's pray together, and let's pray for each other. I'm going to pray up here, but I want to ask you to pray for me, because I need to do this.